The Lord, in his anger, has cast a dark shadow over Jerusalem, beautiful Jerusalem. The fairest of Israel's cities lies in the dust, thrown down from the heights of heaven. In his day of great anger, the Lord has shown no mercy, even to his temple. Without mercy, the Lord has destroyed every home in Israel. In his anger, he has broken down the fortress walls of beautiful Jerusalem. He has brought them to the ground, dishonoring the kingdom and its rulers. All the strength of Israel vanishes beneath his fierce anger. The Lord has withdrawn his protection as the enemy attacks. He consumes the whole land of Israel like a raging fire. He bends his bow against his people as though he were their enemy. His strength is used against them to kill their finest youth. His fury is poured out like fire on beautiful Jerusalem. Yes, the Lord has vanquished Israel like an enemy. He has destroyed her palaces and demolished her fortresses. He has brought unending sorrow and tears upon beautiful Jerusalem. He has broken down his temple as though it were merely a garden shelter. The Lord has blotted out all memory of the holy festivals and Sabbath days. Kings and priests fall together before his fierce anger. The Lord has rejected his own altar. He despises his own sanctuary. He has given Jerusalem's palaces to her enemies. They shout in the Lord's temple as though it were a day of celebration. The Lord was determined to destroy the walls of beautiful Jerusalem. He made careful plans for their destruction, then did what he had planned. Therefore, the ramparts and walls have fallen down before him. Jerusalem's gates have sunk into the ground. He has smashed their locks and bars. Her kings and princes have been exiled to distant lands. Her law has ceased to exist. Her prophets receive no more visions from the Lord. The leaders of beautiful Jerusalem sit on the ground in silence. They are clothed in burlap and throw dust on their heads. The young women of Jerusalem hang their heads in shame. I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. My spirit is poured out in agony as I see the desperate plight of my people. Little children and tiny babies are fainting and dying in the streets. They cry out to their mothers, we need food and drink. Their lives ebb away in the streets like the life of a warrior wounded in battle. They gasp for life as they collapse in their mother's arms. What can I say about you? Who has ever seen such sorrow? O daughter of Jerusalem, to what can I compare your anguish? O virgin daughter of Zion, how can I comfort you? For your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? 
Your prophets have said so many foolish things, false to the core. They did not save you from exile by pointing out your sins. Instead, they painted false pictures, filling you with false hope. All who pass by jeer at you. They scoff and insult beautiful Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city called most beautiful in all the world and joy of all the earth? All your enemies mock you. They scoff and snarl and say, we have destroyed her at last. We have long waited for this day, and it is finally here. But it is the Lord who did just as he planned. He has destroyed Jerusalem without mercy. He has caused her enemies to gloat over her and has given them power over her. Cry aloud before the Lord, O walls of beautiful Jerusalem. Let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourselves no rest. Give your eyes no relief. Rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your hearts like water to the Lord. Lift up your hands to him in prayer, pleading for your children. For in every street they are faint with hunger. O Lord, think about this. Should you treat your own people this way? Should mothers eat their own children, those they once bounced on their knees? Should priests and prophets be killed within the Lord's temple? See them lying in the streets, young and old, boys and girls, killed by the swords of the enemy. You have killed them in your anger, slaughtering them without mercy. You have invited terrors from all around as though you were calling them to a day of feasting. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one has escaped or survived. The enemy has killed all the children whom I carried and raised. This is the word of the Lord. Now you may have guessed from my reading of Lamentations chapter 2 that uh, this passage is sort of decorated with anguish and pain and that my topic can't be too exciting today. My, my topic has to at least be troubling, maybe more troubling for some of us than for others of us. Um, and, and essentially, this morning, I am talking about uh, lament. I am talking about lamenting. I am talking about a, a, a spiritual practice. I am talking about an emotional practice uh, called lament. And, and, and I want to be clear from the beginning of my message. I will try to lace this throughout the message, but I want to say it as I open uh, that lament, this, this practice, this behavior, this what we see in these images and lamentations too is old and usual and common in Scripture. 
that in fact, Christians are a lamenting people, that, that we are a lamenting people, and that in our faith, laments always lead to somewhere. That not only are we a people who do this kind of crazy business that Jeremiah seems to be doing with the people of Jerusalem, but laments always lead to somewhere. This is as normal for us as breathing or it should be. And it takes us somewhere. Just like the normal words of praying or worshiping or communion. There is lamenting. This morning, I want to have a kind of working understanding of what I mean by lamenting. And, and it, 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 is, it is a way of speaking. It is a way of talking about our feelings in the midst of frail faith. Uh, lamenting is a, a way uh, of talking about how we feel in the midst of frail faith. This talking about our feelings in the midst of frail faith is normal in scripture, especially in the first part of the Bible where I'm drawing our passage today. I think the Hebrew people were well acquainted with pain. They, they knew hunger, which pulled them uh, to, the, to the fringe Egyptian town of Gibeon when they were starving. They knew, they knew enslavement and oppression when the new Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph, came to power. They knew the hardships of, 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 of tradition and transition and disobedience when they walked in the wilderness for all those years. The Hebrew people knew something about egg Exile. They knew something about slavery. They knew something about pain. They, they were a people who God had promised things to, but God had to remove the promise of God because of their own disobedience. And the people of God knew how it felt to be miserable, seeing and knowing and hearing the promise of God and being so far from it. They were a lamenting people. In the case of the book that I draw our passage from, this long, dismal chapter 2 of Lamentations. And in the experience of God's people, lament is speech, it is talk about feelings, but, but the Bible expresses those feelings to God, and therefore they are prayers. And so I'm kind of building on Mike Thomas when he talked about victorious prayer. I'm sort of drawing from what Pastor Peter, Pastor David dealt with last week in, in looking at the, the story of Scripture, and I'm drawing from them and a little bit from from other places over the last five weeks and trying to say that these prayers of lament are prayers for us. They they are different prayers than prayers of confession. They're not like prayers of uh, supplication. When we pray prayers of confession, we, we talk about our sins and we, we complain about our sins in the ears of a merciful God. They, they are different from prayers of complaint even, where we list our needs and our desires and our problems before God. These lament prayers are different because they don't emphasize our sin, they emphasize our misery. They emphasize our sense of suffering unjustly 
Secondly, they emphasize our feeling of being abandoned by friends and abandoned by God. Another way of saying that uh, is that, that when we lament, unlike our other prayers, we are speaking doubtfully. Say the word doubt. You didn't hear me. I said, say the word doubt. Yeah. When we pray prayers of lament, we are praying doubtfully. See, you, you and I can confess our sins to God. And if John is right in the latter part of the Bible, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can pray our prayers of petition and list our needs and say, I need this. God, will you open this door? God, will you make this way? And if Jesus is true, when he says you can ask, and keep on asking. You can seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. We can do that in a kind of faith. But when it comes to prayers of lament, we're actually praying prayers that doubt the presence, the nearness, the care, the closeness of God. I was in Bronzeville last week, and um, I, was, I was working with this, this, is, this topic. Uh, it was a part of a sermon series they were in. This is not the same message. I was in Lamentations chapter 1 and um, this week, too, and talking uh, about what it means for people to lament in Bronzeville. Today, it's more about the practice of lament for us here in Logan Square. And Michelle, Michelle Dotson came up to me, and she said, you know, I kept wondering why it is we don't lament. Why it is we don't do this? Why don't we speak this way? Why don't we talk about our feelings when our faith is frail? Why don't we, why don't we go and, and, and release this? And I told her I was going to think about this question because it would be for your benefit. And I, and I thought about it, and I won't have all the answers. I have four answers to Michelle's question. I want you to think about uh, what, her, what your answer to her question might be. Why, why we don't go about uh, our, our, our life doing this that, that uh, Jeremiah and, and the people of Israel are doing in Lamentations. And four reasons. One is I think we don't do it because uh, it's irreverent. It's, uh, it's, it's disrespectful. It's, it's, it's sort of off talking to a majestic and holy and uh, powerful God who holds all things together in a tone that's angry. And um, in a tone that is uh, sarcastic, in a, in a tone that is full of bitterness, it's, it's not really reverent. It's not respectful to, to look and, to, and to, to, to look if you can look, if I can put it in that way, in the direction of God and say, what are you doing? Just not quite reverent. I, I think a second reason we don't really do this is we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to lament. We don't really get a lot of cues, especially um, especially uh, men, you know, we don't know how to talk about our feelings when, when we don't have confidence, when we don't have a, a sense of security, a sense of solidity. Uh, and maybe this is true. I'm not a woman, so the sisters can tell me if this is true for you. Is it true that we don't really learn how to talk about What's going on in us when we don't sense God around us? I think a third reason we don't do this is uh, oh, we complain to people instead. 
It's, it's, it's easier uh, to pull Alamandola to the side and say, let me tell you how sad my life is. Now, that is a part of uh, Christian community. That's a part of developing relationships. That's about 80% of most of our friendships, right? Complaining and going in. I mean, you know, what would you talk to your friends about if it wasn't for how terrible your life is? You know, it would be boring. Say, I don't need you anymore. So uh, I found God. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a sense in which, and it's completely right for us to use the people that we love and they use us, right? So, you know, I listen to you for three hours. You don't have 20 minutes for me to talk to you. And there's a sense in which we, we would rather take somebody's hand and just go off because, because there's something tangible, there's something tactile, something physical uh, in, in that relationship. We'd rather complain to people. And I think a fourth reason why we don't do what the scripture is talking about here is that we like keeping our misery inside. Now, this is, this is a, little, um, a little playful, this fourth one, because I, you know, I, don't, I don't believe this literally. I believe that there is something in us that does what the people of Israel are showing us how to do. But when we, when we raise the questions of one another, we have to ask each other, you know, Michael, Michael, do you like this? Michael, do you enjoy this? Uh, church, do you enjoy seeing what is happening in our city, in our Jerusalem, in the ancient home of God, and not say anything about it? There may be other reasons, but some of this speaks to a few of you. Why you might not speak your feelings in the midst of frail faith. Why I might not lament. But let's shift and talk about how we might do it. Let's get past kind of the reasons. The reasons don't really matter. Because I just want to push you, nudge you maybe, pull you maybe. And give you a couple of ways where you might see yourself doing what Jerusalem is doing. I've successfully put my points in one word points and they all begin with the same letter. So let's hope it's not too playful and naive. Um, But the first one is read. One of the benefits of being a word-centered people being a Bible-based people, being a Bible-believing people, and I know that that can mean a dozen things uh, to us today, but, but, but uh, one, of the, one of the benefits of being a word-centered people is that we get to start somewhere, that we don't have to create a beginning, that we don't have to sort of engineer or manufacture how to do what these people of God are doing. We get to start here. We get to start in the Word of God. We get to start in Lamentations, be it chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 4 or chapter 5. We aren't pressed to come up with laments on our own. We aren't pushed to find the right words or the right prayers. Some of you uh, don't have particular experiences of suffering, frankly. Some of, some of you don't really create good prayers. Some of you are here and, you know, you don't, you know, you, you, you're, you're relatively secure and relative secure. When we talk about babies starving in the streets, you know, I'm almost sure 70, 80 percent of us ate breakfast this morning. Or at least you could choose not to. 
So, so, so there's this sense in which starting uh, on our own when it comes to laments is really difficult. So we get to pull from what has already been provided for us. The laments have already been provided for us. I used to, I used to get gifts uh, when I was a boy. They stopped at about 13, maybe 14. Uh, but my mother was smart before then, and she used to give us gifts. Uh, I didn't mean that. Mother, if you listen to this podcast, and I know you don't listen to podcasts, but that was just a sermonic joke that they didn't catch. So um, I used to get these gifts when I was a boy at Christmas, and, uh, you know, you tear open these boxes, uh, and you see the remote control car, it was red, this particular one, and I think I was about eight or nine, and one of the most debilitating feelings in the world was opening up that package, pulling the remote out, sitting the car right where I wanted it to be, and trying to play with the stick, and figuring out that the thing didn't have any batteries. For you who play with toys, has that ever happened to you? Like before you wised up? Getting, getting something that you wanted and seeing that what you needed in order to use it, play with it, was not there. And in some ways, coming to lament, coming to this, this discipline that we can do as the church, as individuals, I want to say to you that the batteries for this have already been included. That, that what we need in order to live into this is already in front of us in the Word of God. I, I uh, sent Val a couple of points in Scripture that uh, show where this has been done before so that we can draw upon some laments as we try to live into them ourselves. The first here is that David laments for Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel. They have lost their lives. David has warred through his own emotional life and continues to do that as he cries out and mourns for the two of them. Psalm 6 has an individual's lament. We we end up getting another national lament in Psalm 74. We see in Psalm 71. Thanks. The words of an experienced believer lamenting in Psalm 71. So, so we've got David who's, uh, whose relationship with God is intact, but his ethics are pretty questionable. If you ask anybody who's read anything about his life, all the way through an experienced believer who knows God, whoever the writer is in 71. And from a person who has obvious moral failures to a person who has spent time with God, They are lamenting. There's judgment for unjust judges in Psalm 82, a psalm of lament. And a final one here is a prayer of distress for unanswered prayers in Psalm 88. These psalms of lament have been provided for us. They have been given to us to read and to take and to use as we cry, as we pray. As we talk about our frail faith. The second one, number two. Number two is uh, repeat. 
And when I say uh, repeat, I, I mean for us uh, to say these laments, these words over and over. I mean for us to speak these words, with, be, be, it, be it Lamentations or many of the Psalms or some of the uh, passages in the Synoptic Gospels, um, for us to say these types of words until they become our responses to trouble and anguish. One of mine this week, uh, as I read it for you, was, Oh Lord, look. Out of Lamentations 2. This week I had it pretty intact that God cared. I had it intact that God had some kind of plan. But, but I wasn't exactly sure, even with that, if God was paying attention. So it jumped to me this week to repeat over to myself just Jeremiah's words of, Oh, Lord, look. Sometimes it was just, Oh. Sometimes it was just, Look. Look, would you look? And I think that the the repetition, pulling, yanking, drawing from, borrowing from, is how we respond to life with God's response to life. We draw from the word so that we can draw from God. We repeat what's here so that we can repeat what God does. Not only can we read and not have to make stuff up, not making stuff up is a respectable and faithful Christian act. We don't make up God's reply to injustice. It's already here. We don't create God's latest response to some calamity or to some sin. It is already here. We don't figure out what God says when children starve in the streets or, or, or when priests groan or when women don't know where their next meals are coming from. It is already here. We don't need to figure out what God thinks about beautiful cities that are now destitute. It is already here. God's response is written and waiting for us to repeat it. Saying the same thing. It gets boring, but it just may form you. It gets tired and common, but it just may do God's job in your life. You don't do this on your own. It's not lament or nothing. It's not, you know, this or nothing. You, you, you do this while you do the other things. You do this while you read. You do this while you seek the spirit for direction. You do this while you fast. You do this while we gather together for worship. Oh, you do this. You do this with other things. But this just may make you in who God calls for you to be. It's a pronouncement. It's an affirmation. It's a call. Look at, look at verse 1 again. The Lord in his anger has cast a dark shadow over beautiful Jerusalem. The fairest of Israel's cities lies in dust, thrown down from the heights of heaven. 
In his day of great anger, the Lord has shown no mercy even to his temple. Without mercy, the Lord has destroyed every home in Israel. In his anger, he has broken down the fortress walls of beautiful Jerusalem. He has brought them to the ground, dishonoring the kingdom and its rulers. All the strength of Israel vanishes beneath his fierce anger. The Lord has withdrawn his protection as the enemy attacks. He consumes the whole land of Israel like a raging fire bends his bow against his people as though he were their enemy. His strength, his strength, his strength is used against them to kill their finest youth. His fury is poured out like fire on beautiful Jerusalem. Yes, the Lord has vanquished Israel like an enemy. He has destroyed her palaces and demolished her fortresses. He has brought unending sorrow and tears upon beautiful Jerusalem. Does it not jar you to read that the Lord has become like an enemy? Does it not move you... uh, When Jeremiah speaks these words on behalf of his people, does it not move you uh, in verse 17 where it says, the Lord has done what he purposed. Now, there are a lot of questions that are rising for you if you're awake and some of you are asleep in this sanctuary this morning. But for those of us that are awake and reading this, there are a lot of questions that come up when we read this. We wonder whether this makes sense for us today. We wonder whether the Old Testament really applies. We wonder whether this is the same God that we've seen in the New Testament. We can wonder, we can wonder, and we do. But that's not what we do in the midst of the story. We don't really wonder. We just say, I feel like God's strength is against me. I feel like the Lord has become an enemy. And regardless to the questions, that have good answers or bad answers or no answers or no real answers, it deepens and forms us. It changes us when we say this over and over, when we repeat this because it's a part of what we do as a people, when we say this with Jerusalem, when we say this with our sister, when we pray this with our family, when we pray this with our church, when we say we feel like we're on God's bad side. It forms you. And it shapes you. I thought about, uh, and I don't, I don't see tyranny or gin. I thought about gin and tyranny this week. They're uh, fitness people. They're trainers. They're, they're uh, body keepers, body makers, these folks. And, uh, and I thought about them because uh, you know, I was exercising. And uh, sometimes when I'm working on a sermon, one of the best things for me to do is, like, exercise and it's somewhere back in your mind and sometimes illustrations come up sometimes things just 
cement, sometimes things get nuttier. Um, but I thought about how uh, lament and this repetition is a part of what forms us, a part of what makes us, a part of what shapes us. And, and I thought about this thing they say, uh, it's called range of motion. Uh, in fact, I want y'all to help me this morning. So you've been sitting for a while, and I've been standing for a while, so why don't you stand up? If you're not holding something heavy, stand up, stand up, stand up. This is, since y'all don't talk back to me, y'all gonna have to do this, you know. So stand up. So now let's just kind of shake out your arms, you know, you know, make sure your pants aren't stuck in your backside and everything, you know. Just kind of, you know, do you do to the step, and okay, all right, shake, 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 right? So, okay, let your arms fall to your side, kind of like what I'm doing, just kind of doing it like this, okay? All right. So there's this thing called range of motion. And my, my barber used to be a personal trainer. So he talks about this stuff and gin and tyranny. So range of motion. So range of motion is, uh, to the best of my, I'm not one of those body creator people, is the, the range of um, uh, that, that a particular motion uh, can be exercised, right? It's, I don't know, it's maybe a better way of saying it. I didn't look it up, but it's just kind of, you know, you move the, mo- the muscle as far as it can go. All right. So I want you to keep your arms to your side, open your palms out, kind of like what I'm doing. Can you see me? All right. Now, I want you to move your arms their complete range of motion. Okay. what's the natural range of motion for your arm? The natural range of motion for your arm is like this. Right. And you're curling. So you get to go home and say, what did pastor talk about? He talked about bicep curls. Okay. so that's the rest. This is this is the range of motion for your arm. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. If you're interested in exercises, this is really good form. Keep your elbows to your sides. Don't move your elbows because then you get, you know, subject to injury. Just kind of move up. All right. You got it. Looks like you got it. Now, you don't want to go out like this because you could be doing something else. So let's just start right here for step one. Okay. I'm watching you. All right. Let's do it one more time. One more time. One more time. One more time. All right. Good. That's the full range of motion. Now, you can do a bicep curl by not doing the full range of motion. You can do a bicep curl by about 50%. You can stop right here. Right. Now, you are working out the muscle, but you're not working out the entire muscle. Okay. Does that make sense? Take your seats. Now, your body just taught you, in some ways, the point I'm trying to make about lament. Because because you can be a Christian without lamenting. But this repetition, this regularity of talking about what I feel and where my faith is or isn't is so much a part of the full range of Christian experience. That if you want to work your life, if you want to work your soul in, in the most complete way, you don't let this go. You, you, you pull this too. This repetition is formative. It shapes you. It builds you. It makes you. Now, it may make you really good at talking about anger at first. Because, you know, your life makes you angry. But it begins to do something that only God can do. God does in Jerusalem and in us. Shaping work. Building work. Tearing things down. Building things up. Reading, repeating. 
Three is uh, reminding. Now, this is close to repeating, but this is where lamenting becomes a bit more communal because what I've talked about so far, you can do on your own. You can, you can sort of read the scriptures. You can pray these psalms. You can rehearse and repeat what uh, the laments are saying uh, on your own. But, but reminding, what I mean here, is that we remind each other of the truth as often as possible, that we remind each other of the language here. Verse 19 says, Arise and cry out in the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands in him, uh, to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. There is this invitation for us to, to remind the people of God, the people around us, to do what Jeremiah is saying. Imagine this morning, if you came to church, uh, maybe you came at 9.30 or 9.40 or 9.50, and uh, someone who you, uh, who you knew, who you knew, uh, was sitting, and you knew they had a bad week, and you saw them, uh, and you just kind of walked over to them, and you just sort of checked in with them, and they looked a little distraught. Maybe they uh, were crying, maybe they weren't, maybe they were just sort of pensive. You could, you could do a couple of things. You could walk up to her. You could walk up to him. And, um, you know, you could, you could be sensitive. You could uh, ask some good questions. And that would be very good for you to do. Um, you could listen to your sister or your brother. And that would be very good for you to do. But at some point, uh, when it's sensitive and appropriate, it is so right to remind that sister or that brother of the truth. Now, sometimes that happens in the same conversation, sometimes it doesn't, but, 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 but it is appropriate for us as the people who bear God's word and bear God's truth. Um, we are blessed and enriched by God for us to remind each other the truth. So, so on the one hand, we get to say to one another that God has blessed us, that God has given us joy, but the truth is also that right now your life sucks, that your life is hard. And we have to have the, the agility the, to, 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 to say the truth. Not to rush um, you past your pain, not to baptize your situation into God's plan. It could be the furthest thing from God's plan. It could be God's plan. But what do you know? How do you know it's God? How do you know it's not? So, so, so sometimes the most truthful thing for us to do is to remind one another that uh, God gives us joy and God gives us suffering. Sometimes the most truthful thing for us to do on Sunday morning is not to greet one another with the high music and, the, oh, I love to be and I'm glad you're here because you don't want me to sit next to you. And that's not quite lament. That's something else. That's, yeah. I was reading about um, an organization that I learned of this week. The organization is called Word Made Flesh, and they have a, a newsletter called The Cry. And Word Made Flesh is an organization that starts communities across the world uh, to minister to the poorest of the poor, uh, orphans, um, folks who are completely destitute, like people who, whose entire town is unemployed, you know, in Eastern Europe or in Asia. And I'm reading about Word Made Flesh and 
uh, their ministry to sexually exploited and trafficked individuals, folks who are abandoned, people who are starving, somewhat like Jerusalem in, in, in Lamentations chapter 2, actually. Um, and one of the entries was written by a founder from Word May Flesh, a group of people who founded this organization. And in this uh, newsletter entry that I was reading, he talks about one of their communities. It is in Europe, and, and, and at this community, they have an orphanage, kind of a community center uh, for kids, and kids walk from miles and miles around from nowhere to come here every day. And on the grounds of this community center is a chapel. Um, and in the chapel, uh, there is a, an, altar, an, an altar, and on the altar is an untouched loaf of bread and a cup. And that's the communion that's never touched. No one touches it because there's this diverse group of volunteers and staff. Some of them are orthodox, and the orthodox doctrinally don't allow the orthodox to take communion with the non-orthodox. And Protestants, you know, you have to have somebody ordain to sort of, you know, uh, consecrate the elements. And so the communion never gets touched. So the communion is kind of a symbol of uh, the elements that is is a symbol of division for the group, um, which is, again, kind of sad and depressing um, because communion is not supposed to be a symbol of division for the church. And, uh, but this guy, this, this uh, founder of Word May Flesh, he talks about another symbol in the chapel. And uh, he says not only is there the, 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 the altar with the bread and the cup, the table there, but there is a rug that is made uh, from pieces of fabric. Um, they, they have a loom in the chapel, and they take pieces of fabric, and they've created this long rug that sort of encapsulates the floor there. And so they made this rug, and, and for them, the rug is a reminder, uh, a reminder of all the people who have brought pieces of fabric together. Uh, in order to put this here. And so what happens, since they already have a completed rug, is they get fabric and pieces, material, from all of the communities, the Word May Flesh communities across the world, these places that minister to starving kids and to abandoned and sexually exploited women. and uh, They get pieces of fabric sent to them, and they put, I don't know what you do, what you put fabric through a loom. I don't know if you thread it through a loom. I think you thread it through a needle, huh? You got to use your preaching voice. What? Well, I know. Yeah, but what does that mean? What is weaving? It's you weave it. Yes, you weave it. And I, I don't, I, I'm trying to get the motion. I think you sort of, it's, I'm thinking of like bread, you know, it's like you put bread. Is this kind of like, it's something like this. Okay, this is the motion. This is the motion. You do this. Okay. Uh, I, this week, I'm going to learn how to weave something through a loom. And uh, you think I would have done my research. Um, so you, you weave the fabric through the loom, and the fabric becomes a reminder for them at the Word May Flesh community of not only the pain of what people are going through, not only the anguish of their experience all across the world, but how they are together in ministry despite the pain. And my question for you and for us is how do we do that? How do we weave? How do we, I was going to say how do we loom? You don't loom, you weave through the loom. Right? How, do we, how do we take fabric and pieces from across us and do this. this? This behavior that is lament, but it is lament that leads somewhere. It is lament and it is proper. It is we are going through anguish and pain and heartache, and yet we're able to remind ourselves that ministry happens in seen and unseen places.
That God is working in the midst underneath the drama. Lastly, number four. Uh, restructure, restructure. Now here I'm talking about the orientation of your life. I'm talking about you and me changing our relationships so that we are loving people with frail faith. What would your life, what would your day look like if you, and some of you are already doing this, of course, but, but if you didn't love people who were strong with God and just tight with God, but very, very, very far from God, um, would, it, would, it, would it change the structure of your day if you saw an opportunity uh, for God to use you? How would it deepen your own walk with God? Some of us, some of us look at men and we say, that's where I live. That's where I breathe. That's me. I'm the one feeling far. I'm the one feeling broken. I'm the one feeling disoriented. Would it change your life if other people restructure their lives to say the same things you say, to tell the same story you tell, to write the same poem you write, not to try to answer your questions, not to try in a very theologically strong manner say, well, if you say that about God, you have to talk about this about God, and if you come to that definition and conclusion, you have this particular conception, but not to do that. That's for another time. But, but to sit in the stanza, just kind of in it, This means that we would alter our lives in order to pray for people. This means that we would alter and change our lives to stand between people and God who for them feels very, very far. When you, when you look at uh, Lamentations, which is an Old Testament book, uh, it's, it's hard when I was coming up and, and even throughout, you know, my life now, they sort of tell you, you know, you always, you always go to Calvary and sort of, you know, I'm in Lamentations and the cross is like way over there. How do you jump from Jeremiah and Jerusalem and deal with Jesus and Calvary and what Jesus is doing? And how does Jesus become explicit in the Lamentations? How? I mean, Jesus wasn't around. How do you do that? How do you do that? And I think that the, the, the bridge between Lamentations and Christ is precisely that Jesus comes alongside people who are broken, who are disfigured, who are dismembered by life, and he sits with them in the stanza of their poem. That he, that he doesn't even answer all their questions. I mean, you've seen this Jesus when he answers his questions. He doesn't really get to the point. He tells stories. This is not a Jesus who took systematics one, two, and three. This Jesus does not know how to deal with an argument appropriately, but he, he knows, obviously, how to sit in grief and despair in a garden, his own or yours. He knows how to change his agenda to go past wells and to talk to women who have been abused and mistreated and can't keep a man for one reason or another. That's got to make you upset. He sits with her. Oh, he asks her questions, but he listens. 
He goes to that cross in his own grief, having come through the grief of everybody else. When we lament, Carlton, I'm about done. We cry for justice in the ears of God. We, we cry for what we see and we call for what we don't. We see starvation. We call for food. We cry against injustice and exploitation and we call for rightness, righteousness, blessed future of hope. We cry about what is real. We open our eyes and we see and we cry and we call for what is often unseen and that is something else. I want you to think about how your day would change, how your life would change if you did this. I want you to think uh, if, if, there, if there are places you can go relationships you can build to honor this practice. We are lamenting people, but lamenting does not stop with the expression of emotion. It leads to a very incarnational, that means your body stands next to somebody else's body, somebody's body stands next to yours and becomes a means of redemption. That's saving. Because that's Christ. That somebody becomes Christ for you. You become Christ for someone. Jeremiah is not the only person who writes these words about Jerusalem, who weeps for Jerusalem. Jesus, he does that in Luke 19. He, he looks over his city. He looks over that ancient dwelling of God. And he asks them, he says, wouldn't you know the things that bring for peace? Wouldn't you know? Wouldn't you? That's Jesus groaning like these priests in Jeremiah's account of Lamentations. There's an old song that just says, was it for crimes that I had done, he groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross, this Jesus who looks at Jerusalem, who looks at the people of God, and carries what he sees with him. He doesn't overlook life. He looks at it. He laments. He lives. He dies. He rises again. I told some friends of mine that we, you know, sometimes, sometimes we rush to Easter. And uh, we just need to sit in the grave. And lament is like that. It's, it's sitting in the grave after death. It's not, it's not really remembering the strength of God. It's knowing about that. It's knowing that Sunday shows itself, that the sun rises. It, but lament is more like Good Friday around 4 or 5 o'clock. Where again, you remember what he said. You know the promise. You've got it. 
but you've got days to deal with. Thank you, Lord, that you are a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That you are a friend who sticks closer than a sister. That you can be trusted and counted on. So help us to pray. Help us to wait. Help us to cry. Help us to call. Help us to believe. Make us and shape us. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus and for his sake. And all of God's people said amen. Have a great week, everybody. May God be your hope, your strength.